great. Thank you, Krista. Good morning, everybody. Um, I do know it's April Fool's Day, so um, I will try to keep my comments focused and realistic. Um, but I will also highlight uh, something I just read, which is Chris, uh, the Kim Kardashian. Chris told me this, really. That Kim Kardashian seems to be freaking out about baby number four with uh, Kanye. Um, and I was already worried about the Kardashian family because uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez had said being a billionaire is actually immoral, and Kylie Jenner is the youngest billionaire in the world at 21 years old, 100 million from her modeling career, 900 million from her cosmetics industry. So I don't know about you guys, but I can't wait to see the next episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Okay, that's where my focus is going to be, and that is the April Fool's line. Let's move on. Never watched the show in my life and have no intention of doing so. Um, Okay, so we get to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is the market, and I wasted a minute on a joke, but it's worth it. Um, so we've, we've been saying that we wanted to buy the brutal sell-off, and clearly the market has bounced back sharply. What's really interesting is what's happened to investor sentiments. This is our panic euphoria model. When the line goes, not the bars, or not the shaded area, but the line goes below the panic line, there's a 97% probability of markets being up in the subsequent 12 months. And we got there through, we were sitting there through most of 2016, leading to a pretty big rally in 2017. We got up into Fourier territory last January and again last September, right before big sell-offs. Um, and by December of last year, and this is probably the sh more shocking element, um, there is no, what do you call it, it's more at the end here, on the right-hand side, you can see it touches in, well, maybe you can't see, it's probably too far in the back. It goes into euphoria and then plunges in two months into panic as the market sells off. Now, this is the fastest experience we've seen of that kind of phenomenon. The market has never kind of fallen that sharply, or the model hasn't fallen that sharply in two months. The, the shortest period before was 13 months. So we're seeing a much, much more aggressive reaction in financial markets to news developments, and there's, kind of a lack of willingness to hold to any conviction because performance is everything today. Um, and the levels of performance anxiety that we see amongst fund managers are off the charts today. This is very different than if I were looking 5, 10, or certainly 30 years ago when I started in the industry. Um, investors have become, maybe because of passive uh, money like ETFs, have become extraordinarily freaked out by what happens to markets and they have to respond quickly because otherwise the assets may leave them. So it, it, it's starting to become career risk if people don't perform in shorter periods of time. And that's a little bit frightening, but it is the environment that we're living in. Now, why do people care so much? Well, if you look at the top left, markets and earnings tend to have a fairly important connection. People have gotten nervous in the last few days about yield curve inversion and what does this mean to economic cycles. Um, and typically when you start to see that uh, that blue line, uh, come, I'm sorry, the red line come down the earnings line, the blue line will follow, um, that markets are very sensitive to earnings. Obviously, recessions generate earnings declines. So there are lots of reasons to be fearful of this. We put out a note over the weekend highlighting that the three things that we're watching, even a fourth thing we're watching that's much more important to us. Yield curve inversion isn't the problem. Yield curve re-steepening is the problem if you're worried about the timing of a recession. Number two, if you look at the percentage of industries in industrial production data that are showing down production. We're not at levels that would intimate a recession. Number three, academics believe that quantitative easing policies by central banks may have suppressed the long end of the yield curve by about 100 basis points, which makes some of the comparisons to previous periods probably less, uh, uh, less important. 
What I'm worried about, and this is our targets, 28.50 on the S&P, earnings growth of 6%, we do think will overshoot, but what I'm really worried about is sitting here, um, credit conditions. So the Senior Loan Officer Survey from the Federal Reserve Board looks at commercial and industrial production data. Are you easing or tightening credit to the business sector? So almost think about it very simply. Businesses invest on the basis of return on capital versus cost of capital. So if cost of capital starts to go up, if that blue line on the left chart starts to fall, it means you're seeing tightening of capital or, or credit conditions for commercial and industrial loans or business loans. That typically leads industrial production, capital spending, uh, operating margins, employment trends, capacity utilization uh, by about nine months. Because again, if that blue line goes down, cost of capital goes up, your hurdle rates are higher for investments and certain projects that you might have uh, planned on doing all of a sudden get pulled back or deferred. And in that sense, the data point we saw came out early February was actually disappointing um, that we saw this very severe tightening. It could get worse, it could get better. I don't know the future. But in the survey of the fourth quarter, excuse me, <coughs> in the fourth quarter survey, they asked bankers, are, if you see a yield curve inversion, might you tighten further or, what, or would you loosen? They said we would tighten further. So it is plausible that we see a further tightening in the May data. We, again, we may not, um, but it does suggest that we do need to watch this more carefully. To us, this is a much better economic indicator uh, for business activity. And it, what we're showing on the left side, it leads industrial production by nine months, and the right side shows you how closely tied industrial productions are to earnings. So remember, we really, really care about earnings. My wife cares about my earnings a lot, but it doesn't seem to really change our spending patterns. Um, if you look at capital spending uh, patterns, a different form of capital, uh, you can see here that capital spending, we track 790 companies' activity. Um, the red line is everything that is non-energy. The blue line is energy. So the, if you look at the red line, the red line's been steadily increasing. But we did have some swings in the energy sector, particularly around 2015 when energy prices collapsed. Um, the only sector that we look at in the S&P right now that is showing, of those 790 companies our analysts cover in the US, um, non-financial, because financials run their capital spending through their P&L, not through their, uh, through their cash flow statements. But the only sector looking at a down production number uh, or down capital spending number is energy, down 4%. And the key reason is there's a 30% decline in MLP spending and a 17% decline in pipeline spending because they've been spending a lot of money to fix distribution bottlenecks in the Permian Basin, and they'll probably be completed with that by around June, July, and then it kind of really tails off in the second half. So they will have addressed those distribution bottlenecks. But other than that, every sector we look at is showing increasing in, in, in capital spending. So for the fears that you hear about capital spending, it's just not true. Now the thing that you do have to worry about in energy prices is this chart here. The blue line that you see in the middle is, um, tips break even. So the 10-year Treasury yield, what's the difference between the inflation-protected securities and the non-inflation-protected bond yields? Um, and the only thing that could happen is the bond market's expectations for inflations. So don't care about my expectations for anything. You know, I, I, I've said this many, many times. I'm married 34 years. I have three children. I know nobody listens to me. I've got lots of experience at that. So just because I say so doesn't really mean anything. Um, and for those of you who have children, when you tell them don't do things, they say, why? Because I said so, you know, it doesn't work either. So in that context, the blue line tells you 
um, what the bond markets inflation expectations are. And look at the green line right below, right, well, below and above it, depends where you look, um, is WTI oil price spot prices. And you'll see it has inordinate influence on what inflation expectations are. Ed Morse, who does our commodity research at Citi, expects oil prices on WCI to hit $70 by the third quarter and then back off in the fourth quarter. So it is likely that inflation expectations will be moving a bit higher here relative to current levels. And again, they have been moving up again since uh, late last year. So the bond market isn't necessarily telling you that there's a deflationary kind of phenomenon occurring uh, associated with downturns in the economy. Now, if you don't believe Ed Morse, and I would you know, suggest that you should, he was a deputy secretary of energy in the Carter administration and has been following this industry for you know, over 40 years. Um, very experienced, very knowledgeable. But if you look at the top left, it shows you a really interesting chart here. And it shows you in the blue, the percentage of uh, small business people who say this is their biggest problem, finding good quality workers. And the red line with a one-year lag is the Atlanta Fed's wage growth tracker, and it does suggest that some of the data we've been seeing about tightening marketplace uh, for workers, higher wages playing out, is likely to get even worse. Now, Bloomberg had an interesting article quoting uh, J.P. Morgan's study that said that they had looked at 75,000 pages of uh, transcripts from conference calls and that no, none of the management teams, they'd web scraped it with artificial intelligence, and none of the managements were talking about wage inflation, or very few. So don't worry about wage inflation. So this is where AI gets you into trouble. AI doesn't focus on motive, it just scrapes looking for the words wage inflation. And most management teams are not gonna volunteer that they're seeing wage problems because the next question that'll pop up is, oh, so your margins are gonna get squeezed, and no managements really wanna have to deal with that. So. What we did, at, and I was at our industrials conference down in Florida in the third week in February, I was at our Cabo Energy Conference in Cabo, Mexico, uh, March 1st. I was at our REITs conference three days later in, in Hollywood, Florida. So, you know, it's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. Um, and all we did was ask management teams all about inflation and wage inflation, what they're seeing. And everyone basically said they're seeing it. And then we followed up, okay, if you're seeing it, guys, what are you doing about it? And they said, raise prices, because everyone's seeing it. It's not just us. So it does suggest that there's some reason to believe that wage inflation will have some impact on general inflation. If you look at the right side, it shows you that wage growth and, and bond yields do have a relationship over time. So I wouldn't sit here and say, okay, don't worry about it, it's okay. You know, the Fed's gonna be cutting forever. They're really dovish. Um, I'm, not, I'm not as convinced. Now, what about multiples in markets? And I'm gonna say, when we're sitting between really zero and 3% inflation, so the second, third, and fourth bars from the left, basically multiples in the market are about 18 times. Now, I'm not telling you it's the right multiple, the wrong multiple. Again, nobody cares what I think. I'll let you in a little secret, guys. The Lefkovich Foundation is not big enough to push a $25 trillion market. I know that's shocking. Um, but I'll promise you the Bezos Foundation isn't big enough. I'm, I'm, I'm even talking pre-divorce. So, you know, from that perspective, come on, nobody even chuckled on that one. Um, so. The, the, the 18 multiple or 17 and a half multiple levels are not outrageous given where we're looking at on current PEs, on current inflation, I'm sorry. Um, capital spending, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, buybacks should be taxed or should, you know, they're legislatively, you know, could we address that? Up until last year for the prior 10 years, 
every single year, capital spending was higher than buybacks. And no one believes it, but this is the hard data. Again, you're entitled to every belief you have. It's a free country, but sometimes facts have to intercede. So I'm not that worried about you know, where we are on this front. Um, if you look at capital spending a different way, X energy, which is now only 1.2% of capital spending, a little less than that actually, um, you'll see it's continued to go up since 2011 as a percent of GDP. So this context that we're not doing enough on capital spending, I, I know the narrative and the populist narrative of it, but it's actually not true because this is all domestic data. Now, a lot of it is going into technology. So people are putting in software as opposed to machines. But that's just the changing nature of a service economy and an information-based economy. Um, and here's the energy component. I'm sorry, I was wrong. It hit its high of 1.2 back in, in 2014, fell back to under half a percent of GDP, and is now back up to about 0.8% of GDP. So it's not a huge component. I saw an article back in 2015 that said that 90% of American capital spending was energy driven. Um, I just showed you a chart before, okay, that shows you almost 14% is not energy of GDP, and yet this chart says you're entitled, 90% is not energy, I would have believed, not the other way around. So there's a lot of misinformation going on um, because people have agendas and motives and stuff like that. And you've got to have to understand that. Um, people fudge data. I'm willing to challenge anybody to find flaws in this data. Because I'm not looking to pitch an agenda here. I really don't care. I'm, I'm actually more happy to be bearish. It's so much more fun. I get all my aggression out beating up on the market. Okay? Um, I used to do it playing hockey, but I don't do that anymore. So I've got to find another place to do it. Okay. Um, oil prices are really important to machinery stocks, to energy stocks. Not a big surprise on the energy stocks, but on the machinery side, because a lot of the activity will be going into high margin energy businesses. So these are areas we continue to think there's opportunity in the market. Um, and here's a fun chart, and a lot of people need to understand this. The top left chart shows you um, that the blue line is fiscal balances as a percent of GDP. So what it's showing you over the past couple of years is that we've been running big deficits. And we got to a surplus back in probably the late 90s, uh, mostly due to capital gains collection on, on tech stocks, on, which were bubble phase, but that's a different story. Um, but nonetheless, the dollar, which is the red line, tra trails that pattern by two years. And it does suggest that the dollar is going to weaken in the next two years. And there are a lot of implications for that, for commodities particularly, but also for this really important chart on the right, which shows you the U.S. market relative to emerging markets against the dollar. And essentially when the dollar surges, U.S. markets outperform. When the dollar slips, emerging markets outperform the U.S. It does not tell you the direction of the S&P 500, but it will tell you something about the relative direction of how people want to think about investing. So I guess the Chinese data that came out this morning is positive for the EM side. Um, it's also po po positive for some uh, transportation area, particularly railroads, which tends to move commodities. Now, this is our view of the of, of various industry groups in the S&P. Yellow just means they were the most recent changes back in January. 
There are a few things I'm gonna point out. We move semiconductors to an overweight, but we still have tech hardware as an underweight. Um, we took down consumer services, not because we're worrying about the consumers or health and healthcare equipment services, because they had outperformed massively last year. And we took diversified financials up to a market weight from an underweight because they had actually underperformed substantially last year. The, the one that we um, totally blew on the call was food and staples retailing. We were just plain wrong and had to move it. Um, but we have kind of a mix between groups we like and groups we don't like, some of which are cyclical, some of which are non-cyclical, so we do a lot of bottoms-up work. I want to show you one example of that. Um, so this kind of explains why we have kind of a split opinion on technology. Not quite King Solomon split the baby, but kind of thought here of which valuation metrics are the most predictive of stock price performance, not which valuation metrics are cheap or expensive. I'm going to say something that's Wall Street blasphemy. I don't care if it's cheap or expensive. I have bought cheap stocks that found ways to become cheaper, and I have sold what I deemed expensive only to see the stocks keep going up, torturing me from a distance. Okay, back in 1999, I was the guy who bought Yahoo and actually did not make money. Okay, I owned it for six months, I got bored, I sold it the day after it gets added to the S&P 500 and triples in the next three weeks. And the only response I had was looking up to the heavens and said, really, God, really? You know, I missed it by a day. Um, but you can, you can sell expensive stocks and they go up. What I want to know is how do markets treat information? So in deep cyclicals, you always sell them when they look cheap because the market's telling you peak earnings. And when they look stupid expensive is exactly when you buy them because the market's telling you trough earnings and they're about to really move up. So respect the market. Don't think you're that much smarter. Um, I have this debate with my wife all the time. She's Ivy League. I'm not. Um, she's classy. I'm not. And we debate who's smarter. By the way, for the gentleman in the room, if you ever have this debate with your spouse, I'll tell you how to win the conversation Just say the, or the argument. Just say, I picked you, you picked me, who's smarter? I guarantee you, you're gonna win that argument. Um, so the valuation work on semis say, hey, we're, with the red line below zero, you're likely to see outperformance potential, the various components that actually the markets have responded to. In a tech hardware, you have a very different picture where the Z-scores are actually above zero and suggest that you're likely to see underperformance. And again, I'm just back testing how markets treat information across various valuation metrics. So it's not about my opinion. My opinion means pretty much nothing. Um, what could go wrong? Obviously, central banks screw up. Um, trade protectionism, which at least we seem to be moving not in that direction, trying to get deals done. Um, I, I don't have a real issue with bilateral versus and multilateral issues. Those are more philosophical. Um, political dynamics are clearly important and, and hard to predict uh, given the populist issue. And do we see interest rates moving in a way that potentially restrains activity. That probably is less of an issue given what we've seen in the most recent past. And then we'll give you all the disclaimers, everything you heard isn't necessarily accurate. Um, and maybe this is the April Fool's component because if you have lawyers who just put this stuff together, it doesn't tell you much. I think we have half a minute to a minute for questions and I apologize. I was trying to get through a lot of information in a short period of time. Anything? Yes, sir. I'll repeat it in case you can't be heard. Oh, there's. What European growth what, would be how the does, starting point? Yeah, how does European growth or lack thereof factor in, into your macro? Viewpoint? Very little. 
actually. So let me, let me answer it in two different ways. The, the simplest way is to point out um, that since 2001, the U.S. has suffered one recession. It was a doozy, right, 08, 09. Um, Europe suffered five over the same time frame and didn't drag us down. Now, the second answer, this is more mathematical, about 71% of S&P 500 sales is North American. Um, that's understated. It should be closer to like 73, 74%, and I'll explain in a second why. And Europe's about 10 to 11%, half of which is non-cyclical. So food, beverage, pharma, that kind of stuff. Um, tobacco, you know, these aren't going to be swung as, as much. So if you say 5% is really cyclical and you lose 20%, it's a 1% drop in overall U.S. revenues. You might see other things like price pressures around the world because they're trying to move product, but it isn't that dramatic to answer your question directly. The reason I said that your, the U.S. numbers are, or North American numbers are a little bit understated, 60% of um, or 69% of semi-sales are to, to Asia-Pac, but they're really not. Okay, they are going to a uh, assembly facility that makes a cable box, an iPad, a you know a, a smartphone, etc., and then get shipped back out. So it's not end market demand; it's the destination on that label for that chip, but it's not the end market destination. So even that's overstated. And that's why I said you could probably get closer to 74% as North American. And with that, I think I'm, I'm getting the hook. <laughs> Take care, guys.